0: Welcome to Acamedia. The jer- mm, all right. Oh, you you were so close. <laughs>
1: you were this, so close.
0: Are we doing this running joke too much? We might be. I'm not. I'm. I'm not doing it for the joke. I'm doing it because my brain just jumbles all those words up. Academia, the podcast of the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies. Oh yeah, there we That's go. That's it.
1: And who are you?
0: I am Chris Becker at the University of Notre Dame,
1: and I am Michael Kackman, uh in my home office in <laughs> South Bend.
0: Yeah, I guess I misspoke. I haven't been at the University of Notre Dame. Well, actually, we were just there uh, a couple days, social distancing, but doing some filming on campus.
1: We were social distancing the crap out of that place.
0: We had masks too, so we were we were being we did. good.
1: Um what we were doing is is trying to uh put together some video materials for our graduation party for our, for our graduating seniors. And I thought we did pretty good. I mean I don't want to, you know, spoil any surprises or anything, but it was pretty good.
0: Well, I hope it isn't one of those like Steve Buscemi ha- hello how are you kids kind of things. Like we were trying to be funny and cute.
1: I don't want to spoil. I mean, you know, I mean, because I know that a lot of people who listen to this podcast also have graduating seniors uh, in our department.
0: Yeah, I'm certain many, many, most yeah. of our students yeah. are listening to this and we wouldn't want to ruin, you know, we wouldn't want to yeah. ruin graduation any more than has already been.
1: So in the interest of preserving it, let's just move on.
0: Yeah. Well, and if, and but, if we feel like- we any, rock. Yeah, we rock. If, if we feel like any of it worked particularly well, maybe we'll share it on the Academia Facebook uh, page. There we go. All right. Well, we are excited about all the uh, summer content we're going to be bringing to you. So AchaMedia will keep in action here as we communicate via Zoom. We can still do our jobs from home for AchaMedia.
1: Absolutely, we can.
0: We've got some exciting series coming up, one which, one, which we're going to launch in this episode. And then we've got um, some other series coming. We've got especially a few uh, SMS members who contacted us after the conference got canceled and had to or wanted to find new outlets for some of the stuff they were going to do at SMS. So we're going to host some of those endeavors. And then we also had the idea with the unfortunate circumstance of the 2020 SCMS award winners, not getting a chance to walk across stage in Denver. We wanted to talk to them, hear from them about their work and give them a chance to be honored in another way. I
1: love hearing from the award winners and especially from the younger scholars. You know, it's just so great to hear them talking about their own work and to hear their enthusiasm and it's inspiring at a, at a time of, of a, uh, dark sequestration
0: (laughs) yes and so uh, and i found them i found them really inspiring to do and so we're going to present you the first three of them in this episode and then we'll continue on with them in some later episodes So if you are an award winner and you haven't heard from us yet we'll be getting in touch
1: Okay, so uh, shall we jump in with our first segment here?
0: Yeah, and so what we are uh, launching here is a new series. This is called Talking Television in a Pandemic. This is a limited podcast series hosted and organized by Brandy Monk, Payton, Lynn Joyrich, and Hunter Hargraves. So the introductory episode is part of this podcast, and then it's going to splinter off into its own limited series podcast of five episodes, um, the themes of which are explained in the segment you'll hear Uh, right now. And then all Acamedia subscribers will get those episodes. So if you're subscribed to Acamedia, it will drop in the same place Acamedia episodes drop. And we will also create a separate page on our website to host it. So you'll be able to directly go there for it or, you know, share links to it. Um, This is a really fantastic endeavor. We're so pleased. Brandy Lynn and Hunter brought uh, this to us and we're honored to be able to to launch this.
1: Yeah, it's good stuff. It's kind of like um, it's mod.
0: Please explain. Oh spin off I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, a spin-off <laughs> but that that like takes as it as its moment of departure an episode of the classic, and that then kind of becomes its own spectacular, amazing thing,
0: well, that's you know, if we could f- be be seen as spawning something like Maud, i you know I couldn't be prouder,
1: yeah, why not? I'm all about I'm all about handing out the compliments right about now. I mean that's that's my philosophy with uh, with grading. That's my philosophy with uh, interacting with colleagues. Honestly, it's my philosophy with just the business of everyday living. It's like. Wow, this this salad is
0: amazing. When something goes right, it feels fantastic. Which you know, yeah. I, I was able to buy toilet paper. Um you know, it's like close. Oh my away. god, you are <laughs> you got toilet you are amazing. Well and that's See how you know, good that is? It it feels tremendous. And especially like having just one less thing to worry about, it lifts a an enormous burden.
1: Do you know why it feels tremendous? Why? Because you are tremendous.
0: Oh, thanks, Michael.
1: You see, it feels see, so it's good. Affirmative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All absolutely.
0: right. Well, we're going to let Brandy Lynn and Hunter explain what talking television in a, in a pandemic is all about. And uh, fantastic work.
1: Yeah.
2: Hi, I'm Hunter Hargraves, uh, I'm an associate professor in cinema and television arts at California State University, Fullerton.
3: And I'm Lynn Joyrich, I'm a professor of modern culture and media at Brown University.
4: And I'm Brandy Monk-Payton, I'm an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University, and this is Talking Television in a Pandemic, a limited series, if you will, podcast in conjunction with Acamedia.
3: The idea for for this podcast emerged uh, from the fact that we're friends and TV scholars who watch and talk TV together. Um, In the light of what's going on now in the world and what's going on now in television, as people are now using it so much to try to understand or maybe escape from that world, Um, We started talking between ourselves about the particular pressing need to really think through and talk through television, television these days as it relates to the pandemic. So we kind of had the idea of offering a kind of what we called a viral TVology about TV and the coronavirus and about what TV studies can teach us and learn uh, from this time. Uh, I was moved to write about television at this time um, in a piece that I called Watching Television in a Pandemic that uh, appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books. But one of the things that I wrote about in that piece is how TV can get us to talk together. So instead of just writing about it, we thought that it would be useful for all of us and other scholars to have conversations about the issues of watching television during this time of the pandemic.
2: You know, your piece is rich with so many insights, Lynn, and um, everyone go read it at the Los Angeles Review of Books website. But I'm also going to add that I found your title particularly provocative um, to the point where I insisted we appropriate it for this podcast series. Um, To me, it recalls the titles of seminal works of criticism by Douglas Crimp and Paula Treichler, work that urgently conjured uh, discourses around representation in, in the midst of a different confrontation with a deadly virus, the AIDS epidemic. Um, was that an intentional provocation with your title, Lynn?
3: It was, I would say, an unconscious provocation in that I wasn't consciously thinking about that piece, but I love that piece and teach it frequently. So I do think that you know it was bubbling in the back of my head And, you know, in this time, I I feel like, again, we really, you know, need critique like that and particularly critique about television because of the way television is so present at this time and, and where people are going for information and for comfort and for company during this time. So, yeah, I do think that that's an important touchstone, that piece.
2: And especially in like my queer social circles, there have been a lot of interesting comparisons uh, made between the AIDS epidemic and our current coronavirus pandemic. And while this might not be the space to really debate those nuances uh, of the of the comparison, I do think that right now, with with so much collective uncertainty and and fragile mental health, critical thinking can really feel hard and. As Krimp as and Treichler and, and many others reminded us, the work of cultural studies can, can help determine how certain metaphors operate in times of crisis, uh, what Stuart Hall sort of passionately framed as textuality as a site of life and death. So I too am hoping that these conversations can help alleviate some of that groundlessness we're experiencing um, in the wake of so much change. Uh, including our relationship to television and media right now.
4: Yeah, and what you're saying, Hunter, really reminds me of AIDS activist Pedro Zamora on The Real World San Francisco in 1994, which I still teach. Uh, I think a lot of us do. And what Jose Munoz saw as Zamora's techniques of counter-publicity, right? Um how he made visible uh, various issues concerning the the AIDS epidemic on MTV and the potential to foster what Munoz calls a, a new formation, a being for others. Uh, what you sort of say in your LARB piece, uh, Lynn, about these new forms of sociality, perhaps. And so I think it's interesting how TV has functioned in times of crisis, Um Something that I want to think through with this podcast series is what do we actually need or want from TV right now? And what do we need and want from it in the future? So in terms of the current moment, uh, I'm thinking about the, the special Parks and Rec episode that aired on April 30th. Um, I was not an avid watcher of Parks and Rec, but it is a beloved program that provides comfort to audiences, and it meant a lot to see these characters, um, to see them on screen, uh, to have that kind of fam- familiarity, and even working within the constraints of the medium, still The show was able to create a kind of flow, uh, what we might even call kind of a pandemic flow, uh, where we had different commercials uh, for Apple and Chick-fil-A and even the the Peacock TV streaming service coming out in July um, that were all, you know, still about this kind of ethics of care. Right. Um, And how we sort of get through this moment with TV. And so How we think about TV now, what we want from it, but also in terms of the future, not just the industry in the wake of peak television, um, but also what it means to see at a distance while social distancing and after. Um, What are the aesthetic, political, and ethical commitments that TV might have?
3: And then what are uh, the commitments that television studies might have at this time? So our series is going to consist of uh, five different conversations with groups of TV scholars. We have wide ranging, lots of fabulous TV scholars will be joining us to talk about these issues of exploring television in a pandemic. Um, The episodes will be released throughout May and early June. So just to give a, a little preview about what specifically we'll be discussing, first, we're going to do an episode on epistemology, covering such questions as how do we know TV and how do we know through TV?
2: Something that I'm thinking about when you ask that question, Lynn, is the ways in which we now have all of these new uh, sort of forms of information and sometimes misinformation that occur, uh, on television, um, Trump's nightly sort of press conferences, um, that have turned into their own sort of reality TV spectacle and the comparisons between sort of his hand, like his handling of, of the epi- or the pandemic and the logics of reality TV helps, I think, tease out some of those, so those sort of tele epistemologies, if you will.
4: And also, you know, with those kinds of documentary, uh, news, reality forms, but also, um, Len, as you're, we're, we've been talking about fiction and you know series that are all about fantasy uh, and what that might be able to sort of bring bring to our understanding of epistemology.
3: Yeah, I agree because I think when we think about how we know or don't know what we don't know through TV and how we might know differently, it's important to think across genres. So obviously, you know, Trump's sort of misinformation conferences every day, but also, as you were saying, Brandy, what, you know, what can fiction bring to us in imaginative responses? What kinds of different genres are out there? What sorts of modes of address, et cetera, that, that produce knowledges? So that's the first episode
4: and next, we'll talk about ideology, right? So what are the relations between televisual politics and aesthetics, identity and representation, communication and critique?
2: This topic, I don't know. I, I, I had a student say in a Zoom class the other day that uh, like a series like Tiger King was so interesting because it almost evoked that kind of collective viewing experience that Roots did You know, several decades ago. And it got me thinking a lot about how that sort of shared text that so many people ended up watching as stay at home orders and lockdowns went into effect really opens up these questions of politics and aesthetics and identity and representation um, that this, you know, uh, episode will ask.
3: Yeah, I think questions of the politics of representation that will come in here are really critical and important to think about, both in terms of who are we seeing on TV, who are we not seeing on TV, what does that indicate, who's watching. But it's a time now when also politics are very much on the surface, in in a sense, right? So what does it mean to try to think about ideology at this point, Uh, But I think it's, it's crucial to think about that and to think again about the way in which ideological critique is always critical.
4: (laughs) And certainly a show, you know, I know Hunter and I, we were watching The Good Fight uh, on on CBS All Access. And certainly that's a show that very much deals with this kind of ideology critique, uh, but also deals with spectatorship, right? Uh, And so the ways in which, you know, we watch television during this moment uh, become really crucial as well.
2: And that actually segues into the sort of episode we'll be doing after Ideology, which is anchored around phenomenology. So thinking about what the sort of primary affects uh, around and through TV consumption right now are.
3: Yeah, I think that's particularly fascinating to think about at this moment when, in a sense, you know, we're all becoming couch potatoes, right? At home, watching tons of TV. So how does that feel? right? What's either comforting or discomforting about that? And what do we make of that?
4: So next, we have an episode on technology, because I think we're, we're doing a lot of watching television via streaming, right? So what does that uh, mean? How are old and new technologies in a, impacting TV production, textuality, and reception?
2: Yeah, there are just so many changes to the TV industry right now. I'm in Los Angeles and uh, uh, so many of my friends who work in the media industries are just having a really bizarre time trying to navigate questions of employment as are, you know, many of our loved ones and friends uh, in other fields as well. But yeah, this is really going to be changing Hollywood sort of production practices uh, in, in really significant ways. And we want to really take this episode to sort of think through some of those changes in production culture and also think about the ways in which you know we're now seeing on social media platforms like TikTok or Instagram sort of TV ordinary people stepping up to fill the void right that sort of viral TV show that happened on Instagram TV where this 17 year old girl in Italy decides to sort of like just show her father making dinner who's like a really well-known chef and how that sort of daily ritual then becomes its own tv series in part through this strange alchemy between sort of new modes of production and new technological sort of platforms of connectivity
3: and even as you you just said hunter a viral tv show i think in this episode of technology it's interesting to think about how that Dis discourses of technology and discourses of virality have come together before now in a way that's literalized is that useful that metaphor is it not does the virus itself make us rethink that so those issues i think will also emerge in the in that episode
2: and then the last uh episode in this in this limited series uh is going to be about pedagogy so how do we teach tv today
4: I mean, we really don't know what's going to happen, right? Uh, and I think that the, you know, one question I have is about access in in, in our classrooms uh, to various kinds of media texts. Uh, what kinds of innovative uh, tools are we going to be using in order uh, for our students to to learn during this this moment of uh, of crisis?
3: Yeah, and I think that it's interesting to think about. I mean important for all of us to think about how to teach at this moment how to teach television but also how television itself in a sense teaches us so in a way it goes full circle to back to some of the issues from epistemology about how we know and know tv and know through tv and how we teach tv and it teaches us
2: but these aren't the only questions, of course, that we want to um, pose to our, our, our roster of uh, distinguished TV studies scholars. And we're very much interested in hearing your own thoughts and questions about what you find to be important and interesting uh, issues for each of these five topics. So you're, uh, we, w- we really would love to have you send in questions and thoughts either through email one long phrase talking television in a pandemic at gmail.com is a forum you can use to pose questions you can also join the Aka Media facebook group and post questions through there and um, for those twitter fans we have we'll use the hashtag talk tv in a pandemic for people to 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 tweet uh, questions they might have uh, our panelists to announce
4: Yeah, so we want to thank our our sponsors, SCMS, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame, as well as Christine Becker, Bill Kirkpatrick, and Todd Thompson for supporting and assisting us with this podcast series. We really appreciate it. So stay tuned.
0: So that is coming to your Acamedia RSS feed uh as separate episodes playing out over the next few weeks. And uh really excited to hear that content.
1: Yeah, me too. Uh and you know one of the things that I that really struck me in listening to that is that, you know, like we talk about like pandemic TV, and the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, something like Walking Dead or something, right? You know, like a, a narrative show that that is literalizing so many of these anxieties. And honestly, I am so freaking sick of zombie narratives. Anyway, because they mostly seem like a really nauseating reactionary fantasy about about giving a you know a reasonable excuse for slaughtering people, right? You know that you declare them to be non people so you can you know just just um, remove them from the face of the earth. And some of the stuff that came up in the conversation here seemed like. Much more engaging and much more humane, like the um, like the Italian girl uh, watching her dad make dinner. You know that kind of like uh, kind and small and humane TV. Like that's a that's pandemic TV that I can get behind.
0: And that seems fitting, that notion of how important it is in TV studies, not to just talk about the prestige dramas or quality drama, but ordinary TV. And yep. that's so much of what we're consuming. And, uh, you know, over this period is that kind of, you know, the ephemeral, the basic.
1: Yeah. And and even the um, some of the things that are being produced, you know, as spinoffs of shows or special episodes of shows are actually super ordinary, too, because they've got actors who are, you know, are um, shooting things in their own homes and stuff. And and so even if it is A-list talent, the um, the production circumstances are pretty quotidian.
0: Yeah, you wonder if this might change standards or what we're used to, what we will put up with, what we will tolerate. You know, I watched the, uh, the ESPN horse competition, which looked like utter garbage. You know, they were using not, you know, it seemed like they were even phones from 10 years ago. It was terrible quality. And I watched the crap out of those horse uh, competitions because I just, I was thirsting for anything. Yeah. All right. So looking forward to, and especially the the caliber caliber of scholars that they're going to be bringing on really intelligent stuff coming to help us better understand the role of TV studies in a pandemic.
1: Wait for it. Watch for it. Listen for it. Listen for it. That's probably that's probably
0: you found your way to it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: see, I am like you in the name of the of the uh, organization. I'll get there eventually.
0: We'll get there. Just stick with us, people. Well, what we're going to do next is resurrect a piece of SCMS, the SCMS conference that didn't happen. We're going to make it happen and more, even better here. Because again, spectacular stuff to make us all happy. We are interviewing all of the award winners who didn't get a chance to be celebrated in Denver.
1: And honestly, this is way better than what would have happened in Denver, because in Denver, they get a quick walk across the stage and a, and a handshake and hopefully, you know, some good conversations and some love from friends. But now we actually get to hear them uh, talk about their work.
0: Great. And so maybe this will set a standard for future SEMS as we can interview uh, award winners going forward. Because I think these are these turned out really great. I'm really happy um, with these conversations that we've got here. And uh, so let's jump right in. We're, we've got three yeah. for you in this episode. As I said, additional ones will be coming in later episodes. And so we'll introduce you to the award winners. We will read off to you the citation that would have been read in Denver honoring their work. And then uh, we'll jump in with each interview. And and then Michael and I will chat briefly in between each of the interviews. So the first one we've got is with the winner of the Ann Friedberg Innovative Scholarship Award. And so that the winner for that was Elisa Lebo, who's at the University of Sussex, and her project is called Filming Revolution. This is a super cool website. This is kind of a hybrid website research project database. And the chair of... The Innovative Scholarship Award was Lucas Hildebrand at University of California, Irvine, and uh, with members Laura Berliner at University of Washington and Michael Johnson, Cal State University, Northridge. Um, So let me read off to you the citation that they gave um, for Film Revolution, which is at filmingrevolution.org. So this project exemplifies the possibilities of innovative scholarship as a non-linear meta-documentary about practices of media in the wake of the 2011 Egyptian Revolution. As a multi-vectored project, Filming Revolution presents interviews with more than 30 filmmakers, activists, and historians, alongside written texts that contextualize this recent and vital history. The project can be navigated by conceptual keywords, by related tags, by interview subject, and by links to additional resources or citations. This is a robust platform with multiple perspectives. Perspectives and pathways, suggesting that there can be no singular account or narration of this revolutionary moment and its after-effects. Significantly, Libo's project bridges theory and practice, historiography and new methods, and filmmaking and online logics. The Arab Spring was largely understood as facilitated by technologies such as Twitter, and this project wisely engages the affordances of online platforms in a way that reimagines what forms media studies might take, and importantly does so as an open-access, freely available, public-facing website. And just a little more information, Lisa Lebo is professor of screen media in the School of Media, Film and Music at Sussex University. She's originally from New York, began her career in documentary filmmaking and found her way into more academic pursuits to complement that work. So she completed her PhD in cinema studies at NYU in 2011. And then after teaching in Istanbul at Bilgi University and then in England, first at the University of the West of England in Bristol, then at Brunel University in London, she started working at Sussex in September 2013. She's done extensive research into the area of first person documentary film, and much of her current research in one way or another revolves around questions of the political in documentary. And that was one of the things I found um, most engaging in this interview is that kind of the thrust behind the project. It's really intriguing to hear her explain that. Good stuff. Let's listen. So I'm joined now by Elisa Lebo. Welcome to Acamedia, Elisa. Thank you. And you are here because you won the SCMS Award for uh, it's the Ann Friedberg Innovative Scholarship Award. So we wanted to chat with you about that. Your project is titled Filming Revolution, and it's a meta-documentary about filmmaking in Egypt since the revolution. And it's uh, basically a combination documentary, interactive website, and database. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. This is the Innovative Scholarship Award, so I wanted to hone in on that idea. And particularly, what a fascinating combination of elements that this is, interactive, non-linear visual site, but it's also simply a research tool. So could you talk a little bit about that, about what you were going for with this combination of elements as scholarship?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I wasn't uh, thinking so much of the multiple elements as I was thinking that I started as a filmmaker and sort of found my way into academia and hadn't actually intended to leave filmmaking or, you know, leave it behind in the printed word. And then we find ourselves in the early 2000s with the possibility of doing more interactive work. I personally am, I mean, my work in film studies is mostly in documentary. And I was starting to see interactive documentary projects. And I just thought, wait a second, this isn't just a, you know, this isn't just about creative practice. Why can't this also be about scholarship? And it, it just seemed to me that since we do film, uh, we're already working you know, with a medium that lends itself to the internet, to the visual, to the screen, to screen culture. Why, why are we just talking about it? Why are we just describing it? Why am I not working within it? And so I sort of set it as a challenge to myself to try and integrate, I guess you could say, my two sides, right? Um, starting as a filmmaker years back and then kind of becoming a scholar more of the written word. And I thought, you know, I, I've wanted to, to integrate those. Um, and now we finally have the technology to do it. And so that, that's part of it. And I think also, let's, let's be honest, the revolution in Egypt and across the uh, North Africa and the Middle East was a, a really uh, momentous historical event. And so that was also an inspiration, right? That became like, wait a second, there's a project here. So I kind of pulled it all together, tried to get some money got some funding. And I just, I didn't know if it would work at all. I had never made an interactive project. I hadn't been making films for quite some time. It could have been an absolute disaster. And I think there were many moments when I felt that it it was, uh, when I was sort of (laughs) buried under hun- hours, hundreds of hours of material. And I was the only one kind of working with it. And and I had a, a coder. I, I, you know, was working very, very hard to make sense of things. It could have really fallen completely apart, but it didn't.
0: <laughs> well, and that had to be quite a challenge. You know, if you're writing a book, you have the words in front of you. And granted, you have research and these other components to deal with, but pretty much you sit and stare at your computer screen and that open document. But you, as you say, you're staring at you know, multiple screens and coding and video material. What is that like having to try to juggle all those those materials?
5: You know, I have to be honest. I don't know anything about coding. I'm not a programmer. And so that, you know, that element was actually out of my hands, thankfully. Um, there were just, there was already too much for me to handle and manage. I think, you know, for me, the the challenge was how to do scholarship, how to do my scholarship otherwise, And I really felt, and I still feel, that film studies and media studies is actually really well positioned to do scholarship otherwise. And we we have the technology. It is a bit resource intensive. I do admit it was very overwhelming for me, but it was also because I was, in some sense inventing the wheel, right? I didn't have models to work with to say, well, you know, so-and-so has done all the things I'm, I'm aiming to do here um, with this project, so I can just use that model. So when you're inventing the wheel, of course, you do think everything's going to go pear-shaped, it's all going to fall apart. Um, and I thought it many, many, many times. But I, I had this sense that I could have, maybe I could have done the research and written a book about filmmaking in Egypt after the revolution, but I actually, there was something also... It's not just politically, it was also somehow ethically that I didn't want to position myself as the expert on this issue, as the as the one who knows, as the subject who knows. Um, I wanted to find a way, find a medium, we could say where I could maybe I'm curating conversations but I'm I'm not the authority in relation to the material and I really did think that this interactive platform allowed that in a way especially the open endedness of it allowed that in a way that either a book or even a linear film wouldn't have allowed so that's why I say you know it, it the context of this revolution also helped me think through the viability of this project or the possibility that this actually is an opportunity to do scholarship otherwise.
0: And another key component of it then is it's a public facing open access site. Anyone could go to it and, and interact with it and run through it. So could you speak a little to that about having this, where it's not just something that's going to sit on a university library shelf, it's, it's open to the public?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I guess people may not realize is that I launched this project, this website, uh, well before Stanford University Press figured it out, found it and, and approached me. I, I launched it initially in 2015, totally open access and kind of without the imprimatur of uh, academic press. Uh, so it was already, in a in sense, open access when when I signed with Stanford, or when they approached me, um, they were really just starting their, their initiative, their digital initiative. And I thought, perfect, you know, then I get a platform that will, you know, have resources to archive the project when the technology is obsolete, etc. But the main thing that I approached them with was that it had to also remain open access. I mean, Stanford is a it's an academic publisher. The, the, you know, they usually sell books. They had to have some kind of business model for their interactive, you know, their digital projects or their digital humanities. Um, but I actually had them take a clause out of the out of the contract that would have eventually put my project behind a paywall because you don't make a project called "Filming Revolution." <laughs> Uh, you know, about activists and activist media in Egypt, and then just hide it in some university library. It just didn't, it didn't seem right. Part of my idea about doing scholarship differently is also finding a way to have sophisticated uh, ideas that are very well researched, presented in a more accessible manner. I mean, I am somebody who has written a book that's probably seven people have read, you know, I mean, this doesn't seem, that to me is not a sustainable model. If you want to do your work, you also want to share your work. And I I very much had that in mind when I made this project that, you know, it's not just for scholars and academics, uh, it's for the activists themselves and the filmmakers themselves uh, in Egypt, but it's for anybody who is interested in these, in these themes and subjects. And I wanted it to be searchable, uh, and I wanted it to be used as a research tool for scholars and others but I also wanted it to be graphically dynamic I wanted it to be engaging for people who are non-scholars I think that in some sense you know scholar all of us as academics are pretty much over-educated, uh, and we we have found a way in a kind of self-satisfied manner to speak to one another and to get affirmation from one another but it's for me, maybe it's because I started as a filmmaker, or maybe because I started also as an activist. It doesn't feel like enough. And I, I do want to find ways to speak also beyond our little, our little circles. Um, so this project was, I guess, my attempt to do
0: that. One last thing, we we should now be relishing uh, memories of a really amazing SCMS conference in Denver, but we don't have those. Uh, instead, we can try to recreate what would have been. So what were you planning for your SCMS experience? How do you think you would have celebrated the the honor of winning award at SCMS?
5: Well, I, I'm not really a big planner, I I have to say. But I've always, I've long thought of myself as a little bit of an outlier um, in the field of film studies. No, in part, documentary studies has really gained some, some footing, but you know, it's its own little area. And I'm, you know, this sort of weirdo filmmaker slash theorist, and I have my own ideas about what I think is, is interesting and good work. Um, So it was, it actually really was very touching for me to then be embraced for precisely what I, what I value in our field, which is innovative scholarship. And I was, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not looking for recognition. I don't, I don't go and seek it out. In fact, um, Stanford University Press actually put this in, uh, submit my work for consideration. I I don't think it would have occurred to me to do that, but then getting the recognition was very, very sweet. And my, I have a sister who lives in Denver, uh, my older sister, and she, I invited her to come and I was actually, you know, weird. It's like being a kid. I I was weirdly looking forward to having my big sister there and and sort of celebrating we were going to go out to dinner after. Anyway, it was, you know, a little bit of a fantasy, but it's all right. You know, it's not a tragedy or it is a tragedy that SCMS didn't happen, but the tragedy is much bigger than SCMS. And in fact, I'm really glad and honored to have a chance to have this extended conversation now. Feels also like a great honor. Thank you.
0: Sure. And, and we hope we also send many more people to your website. Everyone should just check it out. And even just to kind of get, get a look at, I mean, obviously, everyone should dig deeply into the content there. But I'm also just really impressed by um, the interface and the experience. And I think it really does open up a, a door for all kinds of new interesting forms of scholarship. So thank you for that.
5: Well, that's my pleasure. I, I'm just going to say one little anecdote. Um, when Stanford University Press approached me, they sent me a form basically to, to see if I thought my project would fit with their, um, their idea of what digital scholarship looked like. And I, said, I basically wrote to them saying, if you're looking for a project that expands the academic book, then Filming Revolution is not for you. If you're looking for a project that explodes the academic book, then by all means, I'd be very happy. You know, If you want me, I want you. you know, it was, it was one of those things. That I didn't know it's such a new field.
0: Yeah. If anything needed exploding, it was the academic book. So so good job there. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining us. And hopefully we'll at least see you at, at SCMS in Chicago next year.
5: My pleasure. And yes, hopefully I'll be there.
1: That was a great interview. Thank you for doing that, Chris. She's amazing.
0: She's great. And, and the kind of ambition behind that project, but the down-to-earth motivation behind it, I love that combination.
1: It's just so great to, to hear somebody talking uh, about using filmmaking in such a both grounded and really, really ambitious kind of way. It's just such a great project.
0: Yeah. And I think it, it paves the way for more such projects. I, you know, I think it's in- incredibly inspiring. If you, you know, really should check it out, filmingrevolution.org and just get inspired. Think about how other projects can be undertaken with this kind of technology. So now we're going to go to a more old fashioned technology, the book, the edited collection.
1: Oh, I love books.
0: They're so good. So this is the Best Essay in an Edited Collection Award, and the winner for this was Patrick Brown at University of Iowa, and he recently received his Ph.D. in Film Studies from the University of Iowa, where he also earned his M.A., and he also got his B.A. in English Literature and Cinema Studies from my B.A. alma mater, University of Illinois, in 2009. His major research interests are media theory, post-humanism, and Weimar cinema, and uh, critical theory, feminist film theory, and popular culture are also important touchstones for his thought, and that certainly comes across in his work and in this interview. So the chair of the Best Essay and Edited Collection Committee was Sarah Keller at University of Massachusetts, Boston. She was assisted by the committee members, Melanie Conan at Lewis and Clark University and Juan Yamas Rodriguez, again making an appearance on ACA Media. He's at <coughs> University of Texas, Dallas. So the citation for this work reads as follows. The hands of the other media allegory in Bioshock in the hands of Orlack is a smart, robustly theorized and clearly written piece of comparative media studies. Patrick Brown's careful analysis includes close reading. Readings that seamlessly bridge phenomenon, phenomena That at first appear not to have anything in common And that span close to 100 years of media history Centered on the recent video game Bioshock And the 1924 film The Hands of Orlock. Brown's writing seems equally at home Discussing German expressionist film First person shooter games 1920s popular film fan magazines And Dadaist photomontage Brown reveals the connections and continuities Among these diverse phenomena Despite vast historical cultural distances In doing so he puts forth a daring argument about the hands as the focal point for our anxieties over subjectivity within a techno-mediated environment. And anxiety, the author argues, that resurfaces across distinct moments of media technological change. And Keller just added as an aside, it was truly a remarkable and ambitious work. It has stuck with me since last fall when we were reading all of the many excellent entries. So let's jump back to silent film and immerse ourselves in video games at the same time. Both at the same time. We can do that. I'm joined by Patrick Brown, who completed his PhD at University of Iowa, and he's the uh, winner of this year's Best Essay in an Edited Collection Award. So the collection is Beyond the Sea, Navigating Bioshock, which is edited by Phelan Parker, uh, former guest of the podcast, and Jessica Aldred. And the title of his essay is The Hands of the Other, Media Allegory in Bioshock and the Hands of Orlac. So welcome to Acomedia, Patrick.
6: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: And well, it's unfortunate circumstances that you're here rather than you know having just been in Denver at SEMS. But we wanted to uh, celebrate with the award winners their work, and so we want to ask you about that work. What can you tell us about the hands of the other? Your essay on Bioshock and the hands of Orlock?
6: Well, it's an essay about this kind of weird correspondence that I found uh, between this classic German silent movie, The Hands of Orlock and Bioshock, where both seem to be talking about. The way that media impacts subjectivity through uh, the symbol of the hands. So, Bioshock is this game where it's a first-person shooter game where you're you always have your hands in front of you, and in fact, you your hands kind of get magical powers at certain points that, through DNA splicing. And uh, it turns out that, you know, you find out midway through the game that you're actually your character has actually been under the control of somebody else the whole time. So all this all these amazing things that you've been doing with your hands, all these very violent things that you've been doing with your hands have actually been dictated by nefarious forces. Um, and Orlok is kind of the same thing. It's about a pianist who loses his hands in a train accident and has a hand transplant and they're the hands of a murderer. And so he has to, he's, he finds that his hands are leading him to do kind of morally uh, corrupt things, murder, sex, stuff like that.
0: Wow. That is fascinating. So what uh, connections (laughs) or what uh, larger points did you, did you draw upon in in finding the connection between the two?
6: Uh, So I I use uh, some historical resources about uh, part of my, point is that early cinematic devices, the toys that cinema originated in, always required manipulation by the hand. Um, Even Edison's kinetoscope required some activity from the hand. And so people were thinking about the relationship between the cinematic image and the hand in the days of early cinema. The Hands of Warlock made it a point 1923, 1924 where a lot of people could still remember the days where you had to use your hands to to activate a peephole device or or something like that. And there was a lot of discussion in the German press about uh, how the cinema foregrounds the play of the hands, the expression of the hands. And so um, there is a sense in which the hands are both left out by the cinema. People are conscious, it makes them conscious of the fact that you cannot touch what's on the screen. But also that for the actor, the hands are foregrounded in a new way, uh, become an important part of the especially the silent cinema image, um, a means of expression. And then, the, uh, you know, as far as Bioshock goes, it's it's almost self-evident what what the hands have to do with video games. Right. Your hands are your means of actually interfacing uh, with the, uh, with the video game world.
0: Right. That's the fascinating kind of meta, you know, meta entries into what those uh, those texts are about. So this is part of a larger work. It's part of your dissertation, I think you said.
6: It is. Bioshock doesn't uh, show up in my dissertation. Uh, But uh, I use some stuff from Berlin Dada, talk about the disintegration of the human um, and reread. You know, Hands of Warlock is always taken as, you know, this classic German expressionist film that's about the war. But I read it instead as a Dadaist film that's about the media. And that's that's a chapter of my dissertation. My dissertation is about Weimar cinema and play from from a number of different angles.
0: And how did you decide, or you know, how did you pull that particular piece out of the dissertation? And what kind of revisions did it go through? Like, how did you get it to award winning status?
6: <laughs> uh, I don't know because I I just reread it, and all I can see, of course, are the things that I would change about it. Uh, <laughs> so where it came from was that I was. I was, teach- I was actually already teaching a, a class where I put video games and early cinema back to back and discussed it with students. And the call for paper, somebody, uh, I think my advisor forwarded me the call for papers for the Bioshock volume. And I kind of already had, it wasn't a paper yet, but this idea for a, a Bioshock Hands of Warlock paper. And that actually preceded the dissertation. I kind of wrote the paper version and the first chapter of the dissertation simultaneously back in uh, 2015, 2016, somewhere around there.
0: Yeah, it's always amazing when you get into these stories, sort of how long these, these tales are of, of where uh, you know, the origins of a piece um, began and, and where they end up. I'm also intrigued by the connection to teaching, right? That that's kind of students help fuel our ideas that affect our research.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, how would you have celebrated at SCMS Denver?
6: I think, so if I recall correctly... Uh, it's been a long quarantine. Uh, the, uh, the award ceremony was on Saturday and I I believe I had plans to just go get drinks with my advisor whom I've not seen in the flesh in, uh, four years or so. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, probably just, you know, accept the award, go get some drinks. Uh, it was also my partner's birthday was that weekend and she was going to be with us in Denver. So, would have been a nice, quiet evening.
0: That sounds lovely. And uh, hopefully in Chicago, then we can recreate your, your celebration next year.
6: Hopefully. I live in Chicago, so uh, I'll be here. <laughs> All right. Excellent.
0: So we'll see you at SCMS next year.
6: All right. See you there.
0: So really cool bridging in this work then of, of silent film and video games, really fun way to to envision connections across, you know, a century of media.
1: Yeah, it's nice to to see those connections being explored. And presumably that is pretty useful in the classroom when you're trying to to find pathways to connect to that older material that for some of them is just, you know, ancient history.
0: Yeah, that that makes me think of last episode's interview with Paul Taborham trying to teach the avant-garde and things that might be difficult, giving them entryways into these things that they might have trouble with. But if they play Bioshock and then you watch a silent film that has somewhat similar themes, it really got to open something up for them.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is ultimately what developing a kind of critical historical visual literacy is all about, right?
0: Yes. And speaking of visual literacy and visual cool things, let's move on to our final award winner of this episode. This is the Best First Book Award. The winner is Eliza Steinbach at Leiden University. Um, I also want to mention that there was an honorable mention as well, Jennifer Casanave. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Jennifer. If I'm not, please forgive me. Um, but I want to just mention the, the honorable mention before we go on to the winner. Um, so the project from Jennifer at Boston University is entitled An Archive of the Catastrophe." the unused footage of Claude Lanzmann's Shoah. So the citation from the committee mentions that. The committee was truly impressed by the high quality of submissions across the board, and they had a record-breaking number of submissions. And so in addition to the winner, they wanted to recognize the additional work that stood out with an honorable mention. And this book explores the missing images and voices in Landsman's canonical documentary on the Holocaust. It presents research culminating from a deep dive into the recently digitized 230 unused hours the late filmmaker shot. Art for Scholarship, which is spiritually aligned with its subject. Casanave's fixation on details and consistent probing of problems and contradictions, most notably the film's silencing of women's perspectives, mirrors the subject itself. While the book serves as a rewarding companion piece for scholars uh, intimately familiar with both Landsman and Shoah, the implications of the book expand far beyond the film itself. Casanave prompts questions about the limitations of cinema and the moral dimensions of documentary. It is a masterful book, essential for anyone studying Landsman, the Holocaust, archives, editing, or documentary. So that is the the honorable mention, which sounds pretty spectacular.
1: It does. I'm actually really excited to to read that, and I'm not sure how how far off it's going to be. But as soon as I have enough intestinal fortitude uh, after this incident, I'll go back to a history and memory class that I often teach, where I often teach the Shoah, uh, and. I, w- I'm- I think this would be a really, really fantastic addition to that class. I'm looking forward to reading it.
0: Sounds perfect. Uh, on to the winner of the first book award. This is Eliza Steinbach uh, at Leiden University. Their book is titled Shimmering Images, Trans Cinema Embodiment and the Aesthetics of Change. So Eliza Steinbach is a university lecturer at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Driving their research is the question of how contemporary visual cultures localize and respond to global challenges of identity formations, especially mechanisms of inclusion and exclusion So the chair of the first book award was Jeff Scheibel at King's College London, assisted by Karen Ritzenhoff at Central Connecticut State University and Keith Corson, University of Central Arkansas. So here is the citation. Eliza Steinbach's Shimmering Images found its way to the top of the 57 books that were submitted this year for consideration for the Best First Book Award. Kudos to that many first books. It's great to hear. Steinbach's theoretically groundbreaking work is an important and timely contribution to the field of cinema and media studies. It establishes new vocabulary to describe in-between states of gender, sexuality, and affect in visual media. Steinbach opens up exciting lines of thinking, provocatively revealing how fundamentally compatible cinematic technology and transsexual embodiment are at their cores through their process-oriented abilities to de-link, re-link, and fascinate. Integrating theoretical insights by scholars of film, media, sexuality, trans, and queer studies, the book develops a compelling framework attuned to affective and epistemological complexities of the visual beyond representation. The book's intellectual prowess expands as it proceeds. The author's engaging conceptual apparatus comes to life when applied to specific examples from key moments throughout the long cinematic century, from George Melies's uh, trick films, ...and Lily Elby's photomontage in Man into Woman... ...to more popular films like West Side Story and The Danish Girl... ...to pornography and experimental works such as Su Lang Chong's IKU. The analyses are consistently insightful and sentence-level writing is artful and lucid. At the same time, echoing the concepts of change and process that pulse through Steinbach's book thematically... ...a virtue of Steinbach's generous scholarship is that it is an open system... ...one which other scholars of sexuality in the moving image could mobilize in new directions and contexts... The term shimmering is ripe with potential for the field, which the committee believes possesses the high concept smoking gun value of off sided theory like Linda Williams body genres or Tom Gunning's cinema of attractions, for example. Steinbach's book offers a powerful corrective to established ideas in feminist film theory while inviting readers to see, experience and revisit the moving image, the heart of cinema and media studies in new, refreshing and politically relevant ways." So when you're being compared to Tom Gunning's Cinema of Attractions and Linda Williams' body genres, you know you've done something good.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a conversation worth listening to.
0: So welcoming to the Acomedia Podcast, Eliza Steinbach. Thank you for joining us, Eliza. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Yeah, well, we're excited to have all the award winners and to talk to you about your work, give you some some recognition that you unfortunately didn't get this year from SCMS. And so you won the best first book award. Your book is entitled Shimmering Images, Trans Cinema Embodiment and the Aesthetics of Change. So we've heard the citation that you got from SCMS for the book. Can you tell us about where it came from? What were the origins of the idea? How did the book come about?
7: Well, the book is actually uh, about a 15-year process, and it's been with me a really long time um, because I came across this notion of shimmering back when I was doing my master's thesis at uh, University of Leeds in England, and I was reading Stephen Shaviro's book on the cinematic body, and um, he had used it um, in reference to Walter Benjamin, um, and I was just really Struck by the way in which it was such a visual concept, um, but it was really talking about the in betweenness of cinema that you have these constant flickerings between light and dark, um, especially soundtracks often can fade in and out. And of course, in editing, you have all these wonderful fades or use of irises, um, not to mention the types of imagery of different bodies being pieced together. So for me, it was. Yeah, a kind of ungraspable way of of describing cinema that allowed me to, you know, to have a kind of promiscuous understanding of what shimmering could be. And that meant it took a long, long time for me to sort of pin it down and make a more structural argument about what shimmering needs, need, well, what it means, but um, also how it relates to media studies as well as transgender studies. So it was a long time in the making.
0: Well, I'm intrigued by the notion of like there's something ephemeral about that description and then to try to apply it to something relatively concrete and then draw ideas out of that. And I also really like that idea of, you know, something so long gestating. Uh, Ideas can take a long time. Um, So what about the process of writing the book then? At what point did you finally feel like you had it grasped and could get going on it?
7: Well, admittedly, it was actually after the dissertation was finished and I had well, the desire to, to make a, a book proposal that would be sellable. And um, the gorgeous thing for me, at least, about reading Duke University Press's books is that they have a very strong concept centering most of them. And so it was my task then to try and reorganize the material so that I had three clear chapters that dealt with shimmering in one way Um, So they could be three different ways. And then everything started to fall into place that I allowed myself (laughs) really the multiplicity um, and the promiscuity of the concept um, to live and breathe. And I didn't try to make it uh, one thing. Um, And that became actually the the way in which the, the book got assembled.
0: What did you find most? Because writing a book is not easy. I've written one book. I have a, a first book. I don't have a second book yet. And especially because the first book was such a, 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 you know, a process. What did you find most gratifying about the process of writing your first book?
7: To be honest, it was the moment I got the reader reports, and I felt that things that at least for me had been living in my head, uh, and and were uh, giving me a lot of pleasure as a researcher and as somebody like. You know, eager to think about the um, complexity of embodiment in cinema, and those reader reports were, were like, finally, I, I had companions on that journey. Um, and of course, as the book has now been out for uh, a little more than a year, I've gotten a lot of feedback from from readers, but especially when I've gone to do talks and I see a whole other generation of cinema and gender studies scholars, as well as actually people in a lot of different fields than I expected, like theater studies, um, who are reading it and are finding something in it for them. And that for me is really gratifying that the the shimmering uh, has, has kind of floated outside of my own realm and my my own kind of effort to grasp it and other people are now grappling with it and uh, that's been awesome
0: that's a lovely metaphor by the way I really (laughs) love that and especially that idea of like kind of two layers to this first of all as you mentioned the reader reports it it that's the first moment it's it's a real thing and it's not just like something on your computer like exists to someone else Um, and also when you know like when you first see it you get the first copy like you know you see it physically like there's a a, a, you know a tactile Tangibility to that, that's really thrilling. And then also, I'm really, it's, it's really nice to hear that notion of there's almost a community building up around your book that's then spawning new ideas. I mean, that's what we're all here to do to share those kind of ideas. So that's got to be really extremely gratifying too to see your ideas out there and, and growing.
7: Yeah. And to think that something that I sat with and I, I really wanted to elaborate and that it's worthwhile for other people too. Um, so it kind of made that experience, which at the time felt very selfish. At some point, it was like I finally had something to offer, and then I could turn that into like a, a mode of, of generosity. Um, so <laughs> I really want people to run with it. It's not that, oh, I want to explain it and defend it. It was now this moment of it's out in the world, and it's awesome. I <laughs> I love to see that kind of level of the, what's uncontrollable about uh, what people make of it. At first, I have to say before it came out, I was terrified, <laughs> right? <laughs> you think, oh, what will, what will people think? But as, as I um, started to experience um, giving book talk, that was not the case.
0: Well, and that's part of the faith of writing. It's one reason why writing can be so difficult to because once you start writing and it's on that page, then it's there and it's yours and and you own it. And it's really a leap of faith to then share that with others and say, I think this is good enough to be between covers. And you have other people telling you that, like a publisher, for instance, but just even literally starting to write and think, I have something to say that someone should read. It's an act of of faith in ourselves to go through that.
7: Yeah. It took me a long time, I think, to have the a kind of confidence as well, um, because I'm trained um, in cultural analysis rather than media studies proper. And so I did a lot of self-study. And for me, going to SEMS um, was also a really big part of writing the book because I started to find my community there find the type of people who do uh, or I should say the people who do my type of media studies and you know which I, I don't only write about cinema I, I talk about life uh, performance um, photography drawing um, and so on so for me I, I really was excited to find like-minded people that also gave me a kind of boost of confidence that this will be well received so I have to say when I won this award, it was extremely meaningful because I was like, wow, this is the place that I feel good in. And it's amazing to be recognized by this community that I really value and respect.
0: Well, and unfortunately, the conference that we were where we would have celebrated you has been uh, canceled. I can't really say postpone because we're not going back to Denver next year. We'll be in Chicago. But um, could you reflect a little bit about what your S.M.S. experience might have been? Like, what, what ways would you have celebrated the award? What ways would you have caught up with colleagues who've meant so much to you in your in your uh, academic career?
7: Um, I was not able to be there, actually. Um, oh, okay. So <laughs> for, for me, this was like, uh, actually a bit of a relief that I didn't have the FOMO, right? <laughs> um, uh, fear of missing out. Um, but um, the year before, I celebrated the launch of the book um, with my editor, Courtney Berger, and I think an assembly of about 20 people in Seattle at the hotel sort of hotel bar. And that was awesome, because I could put the book in people's hands and sign it and enjoy the excited faces of I can't wait to read this. And I think for me this year, what I was really looking forward to was being able to kind of maybe, you know, hear what people thought now that they've had a chance to look at some of it and to see how it's circulating. And yeah, what people are making of it. Um, for me, being at SAMS, I've found a lot of people working in queer and transgender studies and the caucus that has, uh, for, for me, been a touchstone is certainly now called, I think, um, Transgender Variant and Queer Caucus. And I was especially looking forward to their, their drinks and Boral. Um It's a great group of people. Yes.
0: Well, especially knowing you wouldn't have been able to make it to SEMS this year. I'm really grateful that we had a chance to chat with you and and give your work some recognition. And we'll put your contact information on our website. So if anyone wants to touch base with you and send uh, their thoughts
7: about your book, um, they'll be able to get in touch. Great. Thank you so much. Hope to hear from all of y'all.
1: fun to listen to. I love hearing people talk about their work when they are both so masterful in their understanding and knowledge of it, but also really clearly inviting a conversation. What struck me was that Steinbach is really just kind of opening up a really fantastic idea and not entirely sure where exactly the conversation might go. And that's incredibly generous intellectually and productive.
0: I love that metaphor they gave of the notion. So so the kind of basing is around shimmering and then this metaphor of the work itself expanding, you know, pulsating, f- becoming fluid in, in you know, turning into other people's work. I thought that was just a really beautiful metaphor for, you know, essentially how we want all of this kind of work to operate. Really inspiring. All right. So we hope you enjoyed those three interviews. We have more to come. If you didn't, well, sorry, we have more to come. But well, there's more to come. <laughs> there's <laughs> That's more good. to come. So, what are your summer plans there, Chris? Oh, I'm going to probably spend a lot of time at home,
4: probably just a little bit, you know, figure out. Kind of
0: lay low. Yeah, check things out at my house, explore some new rooms, maybe find new ways of sitting Mm. on the couch, perhaps. Oh,
1: wow, that's good. You know, one thing that I haven't heard of anybody doing is like radical um, home projects. Mm hmm like redecorating and, you know, rearranging and knocking down walls and, you know, whatever.
0: Well, you usually do things like that outside, so... Yeah,
1: I mean, I'll be working on the house this summer, but but maybe you should too. Maybe you should just, you know, start disassembling things.
0: Well, maybe I should... so. so. Anyone who follows me on social media cannot help but know that I have obtained a pair of kittens and uh, they are adorable and lovely. So maybe I should actually redesign my house for the kittens. I should create, you know, because people usually buy those condos, like those things that a kitten, you know, cats can climb on. Maybe I should make my entire house into a cat condo. You know, I,
1: I'll i have to look for this on YouTube, but I, I believe I have seen either photographs or video of somebody who basically did like built-in cat tunnels all through their house like kind of paralleling but different from the you know like the ventilation system um HVAC and honestly it was amazing.
0: I'll get to work on that. No pressure. <laughs> all right. And then otherwise I'm probably just going to watch a lot of TV. That'll be the part oh, of it. Oh yeah
1: you are gonna watch de- okay what are you gonna watch what are you what's on the what's on the docket
0: a funny thing here I actually haven't watched much television I watched you know I mentioned the horse um, I watched the parks and Rec special I watched a few other things but I haven't you know I've, I've seen so many people saying they have all this time and you know we're still in the semester I haven't had time going to online teaching was a lot of work and we got the grading now but the thing is the one thing I always always for years now I think I've probably been watching for maybe eight or nine years now is watching EastEnders, the British soap opera EastEnders, which is on mm-hmm. four times a week. And I almost never get behind. I watch it, you know, those, and usually that, that night I'll watch the episode twice now in the, you know, self-isolation period, the stay at home period twice. Now um, I have missed episodes and the way they're working them. Cause they're trying to stretch them out as long as possible. Cause they've shut down production is they are airing just two episodes a week. They air on Monday and Tuesday night. And then that's it for the week at least two weeks, I have skipped them. And it's just such a fascinating scenario that there are fewer episodes and now I'm I'm having a harder time keeping up with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Partly that's just because I'm busy and I have to knock out anything that isn't absolutely essential. But it's also at the heart of watching a soap opera is the everydayness, the rhythm. I fit it into my everyday life. Mm -hmm. And so number one, my everyday life doesn't have the same rhythms as before. And then number two, it doesn't feel as essential if it's not there every day for me. If it's only there two days a week, it feels like, well, I'll just let that go. And so it's been a fascinating exercise in rethinking how my soap opera viewership works once you take away the everydayness from me, both in the show and in my own life.
1: So, what's the plan then? Are you going to? Are you just going to try to stick with it, or are you going to save up some episodes so that you can have, you know, if you wait most of the summer, then you can have like a month long of of a full four or more episodes a week.
0: Yeah, that's if I was being strategic, I would do that. And especially this, you know, these of course were all filmed before the shutdown, and so the typical, so it usually airs Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and you know the Friday is always the big big powerful episodes so those are happening on Tuesdays now and that's just not right Tuesdays aren't supposed to be big and powerful so if I was doing it right I should skip a week and then catch up with the four Um, they are I believe going to run out of episodes in June but they are talking now about ways in which to restart production so they're inspired by the Australian soap opera Neighbors which has started production and they are limiting cast so anyone who's older in the cast is not being used they are uh, there's going to be no kissing scenes no lovey-dovey stuff. They are standing. The actors are six feet apart, but filming them with shot reverse shot to make it look like they're close to each other. So they're coming up with some innovative ways. And I'm also just fascinated by the idea how do you take a genre that's about putting large ensemble casts in the same room yeah. together yelling at each other.
1: Right. Watching all their interactions. And,
0: yeah. yeah. How do you pull that out of the core of soap opera and make them small groups of people in, in kind of separate spaces interacting just one-on-one. It's It, it would require an entire rethinking of what What soap opera is about
1: well that will be that will definitely be interesting to uh to watch develop
0: yeah you know i don't know if i want it like i want my good old-fashioned soaps back but there's stuff coming we you know whether we want it or not we're getting some of this stuff
1: very little about this appears to be optional right we will just adjust
0: we will and we'll adjust here at acamedia as we move forward
1: we will all right acamedia is brought to you, I always feel like I'm going to slip into the, into like a Sesame Street thing. Like, you know, the letter U.
0: The letters S, C, M, and S.
1: Um, but we are produced with the support of SCMS and also the generous support of the University of Notre Dame. Denison University
0: thank you to all of them and thank you also to our compatriots in producing this podcast that would be Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University the golden ears of Todd Thompson down at University oh, yeah. of Texas at Austin is it is it at Austin or is it just University of Texas Austin
1: um, you, University of Texas at Austin
0: it gets good. hard you know everyone has their thing so it's like you know in at or it's just a dash the, yeah, the university of- right. it's tough to keep track and then also Stephanie Brown at Westchester University, Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester, and Frank Mondelli at Stanford.
1: It is a, a noble and hardworking crew, and uh, would be impossible without uh, all of their help, and also the help of our guests and interviewees, and the new crew that's putting together this talking TV thing.
0: Yeah, Brandy Monk-Payton, Lynn Joyrich, and Hunter Hargraves. Uh, look for episodes of Talking Television in a Pandemic coming to an Media subscription near you. You know,
1: I have to say just one more thing. Yeah. I think this was our best episode ever.
0: I think it was too. God, we are so great. It feels so good to have accomplished this episode. Oh man, I think we've earned uh, a drink. All right, let's go get a drink. It's five o'clock somewhere. It's five o'clock. It's it's five o'clock. What I was saying to someone, yeah, that that um, it's five o'clock somewhere. It's it's always yeah. Was that what I was? I had a, I had a funny yeah. thing. Okay, I just totally messed it up. I'll just end with that. Right, I said it. Right, I got it off. Okay, okay, all right. That
1: was Chris. That was the funniest.
0: That was the best. You, Didn't that go that good? That was so
1: good. Didn't that go that perfectly? That could that not have perfect. been perfect.
0: Could not have gone better. Perfect. Ninety nine. Whoo.